1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Father, we just ask once again for the gracious help of you and your Holy Spirit, that even in this moment, Lord, you would meet us where we're at, that you would prepare us by the power and ministry of your spirit to be receptive to what the voice of God would be speaking to say to us this morning through the word of God. So we ask now, Lord, prepare us. And as always, we pray that it would be your spirit and his ministry that is our teacher and the one that helps us to understand these texts and that would apply them in a personal and direct way to each of our hearts. So speak, Lord. We ask that you'd minister us now through your spirit's ministry. And we pray that expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, what would you identify right now as the greatest need in your life currently? A couple of things may come to mind, but I want to say no matter where you're at in life right now, I think one of our deepest needs, each and every one of us, is to have a personal experience with the power of God, to have a firsthand encounter with the supernatural power of God's spirit so that we continually learn to rely upon God's power rather than our own. And that's really what our text is addressing for us today. We're going to see that it was the heart of Paul when he served there in the city of Corinth and among the church there for a time to bring the people there into their own encounter with God, that they would individually have their own personal experience with God himself so that their experience and their dependence would always be upon God foremost. Uh, reminding them here that unlike the system of the world, which they were living in among the Greek culture in Corinth, that God's way is not the reliance upon our own human strength or our own ideas or efforts or to put confidence in any man. And that was very important because understand, in the Greek culture, uh, their idolization were all the different multiple Greek gods that they had. And as we've said already before, one of the problems in the church of Corinth was that the culture was strongly beginning now to influence the mindset and the ideologies of those who were in the church as well. And in that Greek culture, dominated by the Greek gods who were their heroes, they highly esteemed things like having great powers, being able to accomplish incredible feats, those who showed deep insights of wisdom and who could wax eloquent in speeches and captivate a crowd, those who were very charismatic and who could, again, fill up an auditorium and keep everyone's intention by just the way they spoke and the way that they communicated. Again, understand, that was their entertainment in that day. Hard for us in some ways to recognize they didn't have Netflix, they didn't have cable, they didn't have social media. What they had was the opportunity to gather in stadiums 
and watch someone, if not an athletic event, watch someone give a grand presentation as a golden-tongued orator that could really captivate the crowd and say novel and unique insights. That was their entertainment. And so they longed for this. And Paul understood that God's ways are not the same as the world's ways. And that's why we saw last time he said there, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 27, why Paul said God has chosen, the idea is in distinction, as we saw, the foolish things of the world, to put to shame those who are wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world, to put to shame the things which are mighty or strong, and the base things, and the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, the idea is those who are absolute nobodies from others' perspective, to bring to nothing the things that are, the reason we saw, verse 29, so that no flesh or person should glory or boast in God's presence. Again, God delights to show his power despite human weakness. God enjoys to display his strength through human weakness. And to illustrate this very principle that Paul's just talked about in the end of chapter one, he now draws attention to his own life and his ministry among the Corinthian church there while he was there. Look with me in verse one. <clears throat> he says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come, he says, with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. It seems Paul was concerned that the church of Corinth was kind of straying a little bit, you might say, from their healthy roots and was kind of moving in a direction that wasn't good. And so Paul now uses his own life and approach to ministry as an example for them in regards to this very thing. Notice, first of all, he wants them to recall their past and kind of the foundation of how things first began there. You notice he says there in verse one, remember he says, when I came to you. In other words, he's reminding them of that time when he first arrived in the city, there was no church there yet. The time when he first came, there was no church and Paul began to minister there and plant the church and God established it. And Paul is saying to them here, look, I want you to recall what it was like when I first came and God started working amongst you. He says, think about that. Remember when God started working among you in time past. And look, sometimes I think it can be helpful spiritually to reflect upon our prior spiritual experiences at some point, maybe earlier on, as God began working amongst our lives whether it's as an individual believer or whether it's even as a church, sometimes it helps us to reflect back to a prior time when God first was working in our life to kind of recall what that was like, especially if we need that perspective because maybe we started to deviate a little bit. Jesus gave this instruction to the church of Ephesus. In Revelation chapter two, Jesus told the believers there in Ephesus in the church that they needed some adjustment. And Jesus said these very words. He says, you have left your first love. That is, they had left their enthusiasm for the Lord. They left that passionate, intimate first love that they had just for the Lord Jesus. And this was Jesus's counsel to them. Remember from where you've fallen. He says, think about it. Remember what it used to be like between us. Remember the love and passion that you once had. You, you, he says, you can recall it. Think what it used to be like. Remember what it was like. Remember what it used to be like, he says, from where you've fallen. And then he says, repent. The idea is turn around and go back. 
And he said, and do the first works once again. The idea is make an adjustment. Recall what it was like and turn around and move back in that direction. So he says, remember when I came there, verse one, he says, and I was declaring to you, he says, the testimony of God. Now the word testimonies is telling an accurate description of what has happened. At least that's what you're supposed to do in court if you give a testimony. You're supposed to give an accurate description of what has actually happened. A credible testimony can be a very powerful thing. And Paul was simply testifying of people's guilt and their sinful condition. He was also testifying of the accuracy of what God had done for them in his love. So as he was giving the testimony of God, he was sharing the true account of what God has done for us as sinful people to offer to us the opportunity to experience forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life through what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, in some ways, I think the greatest example of the testimony of God, which is accurate, is John chapter 3, and it comes right from Jesus himself, where Jesus said, this is the testimony of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And he went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the testimony, the accurate description of what God has done and what God wants people to know, what he is able to do for them. And hearing and believing that testimony of God can powerfully change a person's life. Look around this room. It's happened in our lives, many of us. That testimony and our belief of it has powerfully changed many of our lives. And I like this here because you can sense Paul did not come to Corinth presenting a sales pitch, trying to just get more contracts and increase his customer base. Instead, Paul showed up in Corinth and all he wanted to do was proclaim an accurate announcement from a king's throne of what had already been done if people were interested in it to exercise their free will. And he simply made the declaration of those things. He reminds them, when I came to you, look what he says, verse one, declaring the testimony of God. He says, I did not. In other words, these weren't things I did. He said, I did not, first of all, come with excellence of speech. The idea there is using skilled or polished communication tactics to win over your listeners. We might use the word eloquence. Paul says, I wasn't using polished communication techniques to win you over as my listeners. He says, I also did not come using human wisdom that is trying to use clever ideas or, or, or clever word outlines to try and just kind of draw people in. He says, remember, when I was there, I wasn't using learned public speaking techniques in order to be able to get better results. Now, that was what the Greek orators would do when they would fill up a stadium. They knew there were certain verbal communication techniques, the way you spoke, how you presented. There were understood ways that you trained and learned how to really woo a crowd, how to get a response, how to get people to engage and get people to be kind of enamored with what you were saying. Paul, I, listen, I don't think Paul was against thorough, effective well thought out and well presented communication. That's efficient. Giving our best to communicate well so we have people's attention to the glory of God, that's wisdom. That's love. If you're going to share the truths of God, I hope you share it in the clearest way possible. 
And I don't think there's anything spiritual about boring preaching or communicating to someone in a way where they're not paying attention. You want people to hear what you're saying if you're talking about the things of God. What Paul is more concerned about is he realized sometimes people can become too impressed with the speaker or the presentations of a speaker or the 85 PowerPoints of a speaker that they're so impressed with that they miss the important content of the message of God itself. And somehow that can get lost in that. And so what Paul's concern was, was that he was not there to entertain, nor was he there to motivate them like a pep rally. He understood, look, I am here just to explain God's truths so that you can make an accurate decision in regards to responding to those things. You know, may God help us to be less concerned whenever we represent the Lord of trying to impress people with spirituality and more concerned really trying to impart something spiritually helpful above all else. That that would be our greatest concern. And Paul was referencing that very thing. Look what he goes on to say in verse two. This was clearly his heart. You can tell, he says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, remember, Paul, the apostle, in his background, Paul was a very educated and incredibly intelligent man. This man who's saying God chose the weak things of the world to confound the mighty and the the foolish to confound the wise. Paul was among the wise and the mighty. Paul was a very educated man. He was someone who had a strong grasp and was highly trained in the Old Testament scriptures under Gamaliel. He was someone who understood thoroughly Jewish law and custom. He even understood as well and was very conversant in Roman law, we can see as we look at his life and ministry in the book of Acts. My point in saying that is Paul could have waxed philosophical with the best of them. It wasn't that he couldn't. Paul could have stood his ground in those stadiums and wooed a crowd and adopted the style of the culture and took that and made it a part of his ministry. Hey, this is what works in the culture. This is what people like and how you captivate them now. And he could have took that and embraced it and used it very efficiently. What Paul is indicating here is rather than get overly deep or reveal new insights that no others had found, he purposely says in verse 2, he determined to keep his focus simplistic on a purposeful basis. He says there in verse 2, I determined, that is, I purposed or decided not to know anything, not because he didn't know anything else. He knew a lot, he says, but I purposed not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's saying, my determination while among you was I wanted to point you to the Lord. That was my chief concern while I was there. He made a decision to keep purposely basic in his speaking, to remain purposely simplistic in his communication, except for consistently telling people about Jesus and about what Jesus had accomplished for them and could accomplish for them. I think Paul figured most of his unique ideas, and I'm sure he had many, and many of the novel insights spiritually that he could have trumped others with were nowhere near as important as helpful as just repeatedly and simply directing people to the Lord himself. And what the Lord could do for them. You know, after the powerful transformation and life-changing difference Jesus made in Paul's life, I think he felt fully confident that, you know what? I know what the power of the Lord did in my life. I just want to see the Lord duplicate that in other people's lives. I just want to see the Lord powerfully work because he's the answer to most, quite honestly, all of life's problems. 
He is the solution and the universal antidote to human dilemma. I mean, just consider what Jesus Christ and him crucified represents. Numerous things. Jesus Christ and him crucified represents the great love of God for us. That's the great demonstration of God's love, which does what? Helps people with human insecurities. It helps people with all of their fears and their worries to know, look at the extent of God's love for you. Look what he did in Christ and letting him be crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified represents the forgiveness of sin and the opportunity to have removal of guilt. What plagues and destroys so many people all over this planet is they struggle with guilt in their conscience. And it just totally distorts people's ability to function in a healthy way when they carry guilt around in their life. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the solution to remove guilt from the human soul. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the assurance of the ability to have a right standing with God, to have a doorway, to have access into heaven after we die. Jesus Christ and him crucified assures us of heaven. It gives us the ability as well to forgive other people, not just receive forgiveness ourselves. And look, one of the biggest problems on this planet as well is people all over this earth have been hurt, offended, wounded in this size and in massive, horrific ways And they are living, victimized and wounded and struggling because of something that happened to them a day ago, a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, because they've never been able to process forgiveness and healing and let it go. And Jesus Christ and him crucified is what gives a person the ability to do that. Because you look at that cross, you realize that was not just for me. That also was for every pervert, pedophile, rapist, gang deal, you know, no matter what anybody's ever done, that was all forgiven right there. Even the hurtful thing that someone did to me, it was forgiven right there. And I need to receive that and supernaturally let that affect my life to be able to take that forgiveness and pass it on to someone else. It's the answer for being able to forgive others in our lives. It's the answer to freedom from sin and Satan's power to no longer rule over us to remove barriers relationally. Christ is the one who reconciled Jew and Gentile. Horrible issues in the early days of, of Christ and the ancient days of the early church. The Jews and Gentiles as people groups hated each other. There was tremendous ethnic and racial animosity and tension. Jesus came to break down that barrier because in Christ there's unification. There's the ability to accept someone for who they are and love them and set those identities aside. Jesus supplies to us as well in his life and his crucifixion, the answer to how to live life properly, to live a life instead of being selfish, to instead lovingly deny ourselves and serve others sacrificially. Look, and that's just to mention a few of what Jesus Christ and him crucified supplies to us. It's the answer for humanity. That's why Paul's primary goal among them was to direct and redirect their attention to the Lord and to what the Lord did for them. You know, perhaps today you wonder how you're supposed to help someone. You know, at times we all interact with people. How do I help this person? I just, what do I do? I just don't know how to help them. Let me simplify it. Point them to the Lord. Point them to the Lord. And tell them about the Lord and what the Lord has done for them and what he's able to do for them as the answer. And then keep on redirecting them back to the Lord again and again and again. I could tell you, just walking with the Lord and in the years of ministry that I've been serving the Lord, 
I don't have all the answers, nor do I have all the resources to help each person in their unique situation. I don't. None of us do. But the Lord truly does. He truly, truly does. In all of who he is and all of what he has done and what he can do. It is not a weak cliche to say Jesus is the answer for everything. Because he is. He truly, truly is. And as God's people, we want to believe that more than anybody, rather than telling people, maybe you just need some more pills, maybe you need some more therapy, maybe you need this, maybe you need this. Maybe what they truly need is an encounter with the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ above all else. And that will begin to do things in their life that can put them on a path towards healing and progress because what he will do for them in his power is tremendous. And that's why Paul said, I I resolve to know among you this one thing, Jesus, and and what he can do and what he has done in his great power. And so Paul kept it purposely, simplistic in the aim. Look what he says, verse 3. Not only was he not clever in his speaking or innovative, he says, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. So Paul admits he was not the most powerful or influential person in his presence. Now, look, when Paul says what he does in verse three, he's not just saying this to kind of play humble, to hopefully look a little bit more spiritual. Oh, what a humble guy that he would say such things about himself, the great apostle. Look, second Corinthians chapter 10, we're told the Corinthians who had encountered Paul directly. They said this about Paul, the apostle, their own words. His bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. In other words, the Corinthians' own testimony of Paul when he came there and ministered among them is they said, this guy is not impressive at all. In fact, his personal presence is pretty frail and unimpressive, and his speaking ability, despicable. I mean, the guy can't even put sentences together. He's just contemptible in the way that he speaks. So Paul says here, I was with you. Notice verse 3, he says, in weakness. It seems Paul's appearance and mannerisms were not domineering he wasn't this you know superstar charismatic actor type we also know paul struggled with health issues which weakened his physical life as well as well as the difficult schedule as he functioned and traveled no doubt he was often weakened physically rather than a strong condition when he would travel from place to place paul says as well secondly when i came there i was also in fear and in much trembling The idea is he said, I was afraid. In fact, I was shaking, trembling, maybe even visibly. People were looking at him going, that guy looks really nervous. He looks very insecure as if he's not even confident of of, of himself. Again, it could have been that Corinth was such a wicked city as we talked about. Remember, I mean, this was a very wicked city and culture in that day. It could have been as Paul was used to getting beat up in every other place that he went to. When he was going to Corinth, he's thinking, when I start telling them people about Jesus, I am going to get a whooping. I mean, they are going to drag me up. And he he could have been legitimately scared for his own safety and afraid that he was going to be harmed as he ministered in that rough town, if you would, specifically. It could have been that he just wasn't a naturally confident man, that his natural disposition wasn't confidence, but kind of more timidness. Yet it was in that state of weakness and fear that God worked through Paul by his power. You remember in the book of Acts chapter 18 where Paul was there in Corinth, Jesus showed up and encouraged Paul in Corinth saying to him, Paul, do not be afraid, but speak for I'm with you. In other words, Paul, I know you're afraid. Stop being afraid. Keep speaking. My presence is with you and I will protect you. 
and I will be with you. Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, will later testify how Jesus taught him in the midst of his weaknesses in his own life, that that was how the power of the Lord was manifested most fully. Again, it's there in 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul says, therefore, I've learned to accept my weaknesses and personal struggles so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, Paul had learned this to a degree, the importance and the value of experiencing the power of God for his own life to serve. Because I think Paul recognized sometimes my biggest problem is sometimes I try and be too strong. And that's what gets in my way. He learned the power of God was necessary for his life. And look this morning, how about you and I? What are you intimidated about? What are you gripped with fear over? What weaknesses in your life are you overly concerned about? Don't let those personal limitations be something that paralyze you. Because quite honestly, those limitations, those weaknesses, those insufficiencies are actually what prepare you for the power of God to be demonstrated through your weakness and through your fears. Isaiah chapter 40 says it this way, says that God gives power to the weak and those who have no might, he increases their strength. Again, God gives power to the weak. Sometimes I think maybe the reason we don't experience God's power to a certain degree is because we're trying to be a little too strong. Because the Bible says God gives power to the weak. When you really know you're weak and when you are weak, that's when God says, yeah, he needs a lot of power. <laughs> she really needs a lot of power because there's no way that she could do anything productive on her. And that's when God's power is poured out supernaturally into our lives. That's why Paul says in verse four going on, he says, in my speech and my preaching, he says, they were not with persuasive, convincing words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So Paul says, when I spoke, I, again, I wasn't utilizing the techniques, he says, of professional communicators. I wasn't using tactics to influence or to arouse you as a crowd to get you to, you know, to kind of respond. He wasn't employing communication practices to elicit certain responses that he wanted to get from his listeners. Again, that was how the ancient orators did communicate. And Paul understood that. And look, that may be, folks, the way, let's say, for example, uh, in salesman training, right? In, in, in business, salesman training to be an effective salesman in closed deals. You know, you got to learn the, the power of persuasion and the art of, you know, marketing and their target crowds and, and all that kind of stuff. But that's not how you communicate the word of God. That's not how you share the Lord with people. That's not how you let God speak through your life. Paul would not do that. And I think it's because he did not want to just stir people's emotions and captivate people's minds. What he wanted to do was connect with people's souls. And that's a vastly different thing. And Paul, it seems, wanted to see men and women stirred spiritually and hear God's voice. Now, I don't think this means that Paul never sought to persuade people in the things he spoke about the Lord. I don't think we should take the scripture out of context. That is that Paul didn't persuade people when it came to talking about the things of the Lord. It just means he was not relying on the tactics of verbal persuasion to elicit a particular response. He wasn't relying on if I can use the right techniques 
in my mannerisms, in my communication, in my presentation, if I can use those techniques of persuasion, I can get people to respond. I can get a certain result from people. Paul was not relying upon those things. Instead, Paul says in verse 4, he says, I wasn't relying on persuasive speech, but he said instead it was the demonstration of the spirit and of power. That is, as Paul communicated as a weak man, it actually became an opportunity for the supernatural demonstration of the power of God and his Holy Spirit to communicate to people's hearts through this weak, insufficient human vessel. And this is what Paul was desiring and what was happening. As Paul spoke as a man, if you would, the Spirit's anointing was upon what he was just communicating in a faithful way of God's truth. And God's Spirit was energizing with the breath of God what was being conveyed. And people were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit as Paul would give counsel and talk about God to somebody or as the word of God would be taught, or as the gospel was being presented. Those who were listening were experiencing the power of God's spirit speaking to their heart, and that's what was going on. In essence, you might fairly say, it was like people were saying, I feel like God is directly talking to me. I, I, I totally feel like I'm, I'm hearing God so clearly right now. And look, for all of us, that's what we want. Paul did not want and knew that people did not respond because of his persuasion. He knew people were only responding because the power of the Holy Spirit was persuading people to respond to what God was saying to them through what he was communicating. Paul says, I wasn't persuading them to a response. It was the power and demonstration of God that was causing them to hear the voice of God and to respond in like manner. And for each of us, that is God's ideal. Whenever we talk to someone, give them counsel or share with them things of God's word. Whenever we teach the word of God or if we're preaching the gospel to someone, we want people not to hear what we're saying, but we want people to hear God speaking to them through us. And for those of us who are on the listening end, when you're on the listening end, I don't know about you, I want to hear from God. If I get the chance to be on the other side of the podium or have someone you know, share with me in some way, I don't want to hear somebody else's ideas. I don't want somebody else trying to convince me of things and using rhetoric and persuasion or being overbearing. What I want is just humbly, honestly speak the truth to me, and I want to hear God's voice because I know what that's like, and you know what that's like when we're hearing God's voice. I think there is no greater desire, honestly, for a listening heart than to truly want to hear from God himself and to be able to know, man, God's talking to me right now. God's telling me something. I can hear God's voice communicating to my heart. That is the power of hearing the voice of the Lord that all of us want to genuinely experience. And Paul, notice, he indicates the reason why he did this. Finally, in verse 5, he says that or so that, it's a reason word, this is why I did this, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The concern of Paul, again, was that people's spiritual and eternal reliance would not be upon or resting on the ideas of any man, him or anyone else, but fully dependent instead on the power of God himself to perform in his power what he alone could do. Notice Paul says, I did not want your faith, that is your trust in how your sins could be forgiven or how you could be assured you were going to go to heaven or your dependence on relationship with God to rest upon the wisdom of men. The idea is the reasoning and the ideas of any man, to put confidence in some set of principles that a man is offering 
in his presentation or maybe in his book, what are just the reasonings of men. You know, kind of look, if you follow these five power principles and put them into action, you'll experience God. But you got to follow these crafty five power principles. Paul says, I don't want people's confidence to be in that. I don't want people's reliance eternally to be that they were moved emotionally because I was just so charismatic and moving that I just moved in person. I got an emotional response and people responded in emotion and not in the power of the spirit of God gripping their heart, convicting them and consciously saying, God is speaking to me. I'm going to respond right now. And he said, I didn't want this to happen for their faith to be depending upon anything else. Rather, he desired their faith and confidence would be in the power of God, in the power of what God had already done through the person of Christ and what God alone has the power to accomplish in our souls. That is that their confidence would be in my sins aren't forgiven if some religious man says to me, your sins are absolved. Paul says, don't rest in that. Paul says, you want to rest in the fact that God Almighty says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Paul says, you want to be trusting that the power of God himself is who can miraculously forgive your sins. That it's the power of God himself who can give you eternal life and actually bring you into heaven. That it's the power of God himself who's at work in you to overcome sin, to live differently and leave an old way of life and begin a new path. Paul wanted people to know for certain they were not being moved by a response of human prompting, but they sincerely were having their own encounter with God. That's what his longing is here, that they experience God doing a work in their life where they would say, I truly know one thing. I had an encounter with God. He might have said some things, but God was encountering me. God was talking to me. God was doing something in my life, and they experienced God's power. Understand, Paul realized that it was not healthy for people to be overly connected to him as a man or any person for that matter, but to be relying upon God and his power for their lives. We don't, any one of us, ever want to become overly dependent upon any person as our helper and source of spiritual strength and stability. What we want to do is recognize that we are fully dependent upon and trusting in, have our faith in the power of God to do for us everything that we need done for us. Hey, this morning, let me ask you where or who or what is your faith in? It should be in the power of God. In what God is able to do, what are you relying on? What are you trusting in? We need to learn to keep our confidence in God's power. Only God has the power to address everything that goes on in our lives. Folks, we can pray for one another. We can encourage one another, offer counsel to one another. But apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. We need to be confident and put our faith and reliance in. The only hope I have is the power of God, the power of God alone. Let's stand together. Let's pray.